In today's podcast episode, we're going to go over an at-home assessment that you can conduct on yourself to assess your own knee pain. This is especially important for people who have had treatment with no success, you've had imaging, and the doctors tell you, there's nothing wrong with your knee. I don't know what to do about it. It's mystery knee pain. Go do some physio. Then this is for you because the truth of the matter is, the actual problem may not even be coming from your knee. Welcome to Everything is About Your Health, the podcast. I'm your host, Nichelle Thompson, manual osteopath, acute and chronic pain specialist, and owner of Heat Therapy, holistically elite alignment therapy. I'm interested in all things health, and this podcast will speak about all the realms of well being the physical, intellectual, emotional, social, spiritual, vocational, financial, and environmental to help you live a healthier life one simple tip at a time. Help me help you live better. What happens when you take an MRI, x-ray, or whatever type of imaging, say on your knee? We're going to be speaking about random knee pain today. And now, like I said, you had all that imaging and it comes back as negative and your doctor tells you there's nothing wrong. Just do some physio and see what happens. Well, here's the thing about mysterious knee pain. It may not be coming from your actual knee. It's just the poor literally in this case, the poor man in the middle. So the knee is actually between the two longest bones of the body, as I'm sure you may have observed, just maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. And because it's between the two longest bones of the body, it makes this joint very susceptible to injury. And if you go on Google and you type in bones of the skeleton and it gives you images of the skeleton and you hone in on the knee, you'll notice that the hip bone which is comprised of the femur is the top of the knee and the ankle and the so the tibia and the fibula to be fair that makes the bottom of the knee so is it fair to say that whatever is going on at the hip and whatever is going on at the ankle that is going to immediately have a direct impact on the knee of course because of the bone relation. If something is going on at the hip, meaning there's some sort of decreased flexibility or strength and stability around that joint, or there's some sort of a mobility issue, because the femur and the hip bone is the top of the knee, of course that's going to affect the knee. And same goes for the ankle. If there's some sort of proprioceptive issue or instability because you've brained your ankle in the past and now the ligaments are lax etc etc or you have say Achilles tendonitis because the tibia is the bottom of the knee of course that's going to affect the knee so now let's back up a little bit more because you might still be confused because you might think okay yeah that's great Nichelle I now know that possibly my knee pain isn't coming from my actual knee How can I go about checking this? Well, you can go possibly to see, and again, this is assuming that everything on your x-rays and other imaging that you may have got on your knee is clear, clear, clear. So now you're a mystery patient and nobody knows what's wrong with you. You want to maybe go see an athletic therapist, osteopath, you know, really any type of professional who is 
really, really keen on their biomechanics. The reason you want to go to somebody who's really keen on their mechanics is because you don't want someone to just massage your muscles or release the fascia. Not to say that that wouldn't be okay to with some part of the treatment, but because this has been going on so gradually and you know because of the imaging there's nothing structurally wrong with the knee, you want somebody who can do an in-depth assessment of the lower back, the hip, the knee itself, as well as the ankle and the foot to see if there's any stability issues, mobility issues, flexibility issues, and strength issues. Those are the big four. So if you're lacking in any area, you want to do some sort of corrective exercises or get on some sort of a manual treatment plan to address your actual issues. Because the thing I love about my job, guys, is I can have, say, three, four knee patients in a row and I treat them differently because everybody is differently. You know, some may be young, some may be older, some may have actual osteoarthritis, some do not, some have mystery knee pain, some have muscle strain, some have an, an ACL, MCL, you guys see where I'm going with this. So just because you have knee pain, you can't put yourself into this little box to think that you can treat it the same as your Aunt Susan did and she's recommending you, oh, just go see a massage therapist and again... If it worked for her, well, then that's fantastic. But if you happen to have an issue not with your muscle and it happens to be with the mobility of the joints or strength issue in the hip or stability issue in the foot because you sprained your ankle years ago and didn't realize there was ramifications after, then the, you can do all the massage in the world, but it's not going to be effective for you just because that's not your problem. Not that it's not good because it's still going to increase the blood flow and help to reduce inflammation. But if that's not where the main issue is stemming from, of course, it's not going to solve that problem for you. Okay, so let's assume the problem is coming from the hip. A great, 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 very quick ranges of motion that you can check on yourself to see if there's a difference from side to side is to lie on your back. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple seconds. Obviously, if you're driving, you're going to have to replay this part after and test this out on yourself later. But I'm assuming you are doing dishes or something at home and you were able to take a quick break just to test this out. So you're going to lie flat on the floor. If you feel like your neck is way too far back, just give yourself a little bit of a pillow just to put your neck in a more comfortable position. Okay, so assuming you're lying on your back right now, you're going to bend your knee. So you're going to bring your knee towards your chest, but just bring it to a 90-90 position. So your hips bent at 90 degrees and your knee is bent at 90 degrees. So you're in a tabletop position with the unaffected side. So if you picked up your affected side first, meaning the side that you have the knee pain on, try your other side first. So one of the things that we do in therapy is typically we test the unaffected side first. The reason we want to test the unaffected side first or the non-pain side first is because it gives us an idea of what the movement should feel like and or look like in terms of is the range of motion equal? Do you have 
no pain with this. As a therapist, I'm trying to see and feel where I feel the restrictions, etc., etc. So what you're going to do now in this tabletop position, you're going to move your heel outwards. So you're actually doing an inward rotation at your hip. So your knee stays, well, your knee will come inward as your heel goes outward, okay? And you're going to see how far th that can go out, okay? Now switch sides. Did you, and, and note how far you can go out on the unaffected side. When you remember and you have that stuck in your head, you're going to bend the affected side into that tabletop 90-90 position at the hip and the knee. Do the same thing. Move that heel outward away from the midline and your knee will come inward. So you're doing that inward rotation at the hip. Does it hurt? Does it look the same? Etc. Etc. Okay. Now, if that was restricted for you, and it's different from your unaffected side to your affected side, right away you know you have to improve that mobility at your hip to take some pressure off your knee. Inward rotation at the hip is important with activities as simple as walking, okay? Now, still in that position, bend your other side, get into that 90-90 position. And now we're going to do that external rotation of the hip, the outward. So you're going to move your heel inward as your knee goes out, but try to keep your knee up to the ceiling. So don't let your knee flop out to the side. So keep your leg up into that kind of 90-90 tabletop and just let that heel sort of come in towards the midline. That's external rotation. And is that similar? And do the affected side now and just check. Is it the same? Is there pain? Is it less range of motion? Make a note of that. And if there's less range of motion, well, this is the range of motion that you're going to have to improve. The next one now, take that unaffected side and try this time to bring your knee as much towards your chest as you can without using your own arms. Note any pain. Note if you really have to struggle to get it up there. How much is your back bending? etc. Now try on your affected side. Do you feel a pressure in your hip on this side? Is it harder for you to bring your knee towards your chest on this side? Is it maybe even easier on this side? Because perhaps we may need to work on stability. You guys get where I'm going with this. So basically what we want to discover is if the movement is the same and if not, why? We want to know why. We don't want to chase pain. We want to try to find the cause of the pain. So now we're going to take that unaffected side. You're going to cross your knee or your heel over your knee. So you're forming like a figure four position. And now let your knee gently rest out to the side, completely relax it. And you're going to try to see if that knee can fall towards the floor. Ideally, there'd be about two fist widths from the bottom of the knee to the floor. So if you can barely get your knee down there on the unaffected side compared to the good side or vice versa, you need to make a note of that. Because let's backtrack a little bit. So say you actually had better range of motion and flexibility on the affected side and worse range of motion and flexibility on the unaffected side. Nichelle, what would that mean? 
Well, what that would tell us is because you have less range of motion and ability on that left side, that's stressing and putting and causing more pressure to be placed on the right side because the brain thinks, hey, we lost range of motion on the affected or the unaffected side over here. Well, unfortunately, the knee and the um, right ankle and the right hip, they have more mobility. Well, in this case, we only know the right hip has more, or the, the unaf- or the affected side rather has more ability to take the pressure because it has more range of motion. So let's put all the pressure on that side. Well, what happens if you're distributing your weight unevenly, meaning you're putting more than 50% of your weight on the affected side and less on the unaffected side? Well, it's actually your unaffected side because of the lack of range of motion that's causing your body to want to put more pressure onto your affected side, which is that why your knee is sort of giving an issue because it's almost getting bruised from all that extra pressure and wear and tear? Isn't that a question? Do you see how important assessment is? Because we may have just discovered your knee is not even, your knee pain is not even coming from the actual same side. It's coming from the other side. Okay. So now let's check the actual knee and see what's going on with the range of motion. So now you're going to sit in a chair. Preferably you're going to sit in a chair with the height that allows you to sit right at the edge of the chair with your knees being able to be bent at 90 degrees. That'd be ideal. Now what you're going to do is you're going to make sure your heels are spaced apart so they're about a foot width away from each other. And you're going to place both your fists right in between your knees. Okay, so just place both your fists together so basically your thumbs can touch. You can see your knuckles in the back of your hands and you're placing them right between your knees and you're sandwiching those two fists between your knees. This is just so when we do this next test, you're not going to be able to cheat by letting your knee squish in towards each other. We don't want the knees to kiss here. (laughs) Okay, so keeping your knees where they are because your fists are between them, you're going to try to move your toes in towards each other. So keep your heels glued down and just allow your heels to twist on the spot as you try to bring your toes in towards each other. Can your knees move evenly? So how do you test this? You look at your middle toe and you see if the angle that you can move your unaffected side is the same as you can move your affected side. If you have a difference between of how far you can bring your unaffected side to your affected side in, then we need to improve range of motion at the knee because perhaps if you don't have enough range of motion of your knee, that's allowing me or not allowing you rather to lose use the full surface area of your knee. If you can't use the full surface area of the knee, you're almost wearing down one sort of area. And because it's maybe only 50% or 75% or 80% or whatever, now 100% of your force is only going through say 80% of the area. Do you see how that's going to wear down a lot faster? And if you ever wanted to know why some people under the age of 60 or even 50 develop arthritis 
obviously there's a lot of different factors, but one of the ways in the therapeutic medical world is because of their uneven weight distribution or their inability of their joints to utilize a full surface area that prematurely wore down that joint because it was taking on a lot more force than it was meant to handle. Okay, so now you still want your hands and fists in the same position. You want to keep your fists kissing and your knees on your fists and now move your toes away from each other. Again, keep those heels glued. Let your heels twist on the spot as you move your toes away from each other and are those even side to side. Again, and you know what, I'd even maybe pause this, write down all your results on a piece of paper just so you can kind of get it in your head of what you need to improve on. Again, we are focused on what you are lacking. So if you're lacking some stuff on your left side as well as your right side, well, you want to make a note of everything, not just on the affected side as I brought importance or I brought a note of how important that is to know on each side. Now let's check the ankle. So we're going to do a simple test for this called the knee to wall test. So basically what you want to do is go into a kneeling position close to a wall. Okay, close as in like you're going to be able to touch the wall. Okay, so you're going to take your thumb, do a thumbs up as if you're giving someone a big thumbs up. Like, hey man, you just did a great job. Now you're going to take this thumbs up and place your thumb against the wall on the floor because that's going to be your measurement. What you're measuring is you're measuring the distance at the end of your palm. So at the end of your thumb, so by your pinky finger, you're going to put your pinky finger right behind or your toe right behind the pinky finger. Okay, so that's going to be about five inches away from the wall. Okay, so now in this kneeling position, you are going to try to touch your knee to the wall without lifting your heel. Can you touch your knee to the wall without lifting the heel? If you can't, try to use your fingers to note how close you are to the wall. So you might be one index finger away, two finger widths away, three finger widths away, four finger widths away, a whole hand. Measure how far you are away from the wall and then test it on your other side. Again, do the big thumbs up. Put the thumb on the wall. So your um, thumb on the wall, on the floor, pinky. Um... <laughs> foot is touching the pinky toe. I don't know why I always want to say pinky finger first. So big toe touching the pinky finger on the floor. Again, try to touch the knee to the wall without lifting the heel and note how equal it is. Again, I even want you to note if it's good on the unaffected side or bad on the unaffected side. We need to know because we need to know what we're working on because those stressors are all adding up and creating a perfect storm and causing and creating and contributing to your knee pain. So now you have this all written down on a piece of paper. You know the ranges of motion of the hip you have to work on. You know the ranges of motion of the knee you have to work on. And you know the ranges of motion of which ankle you have to work on. So we'll lucky for you I have a YouTube channel where I put out a ton of information on how you can utilize different exercises to work on hip mobility and opening up of the hip to work on knee range of motion and to work on ankle range of motion so I will leave that in the description below so you can get a direct link to any video for either your hip your knee or your ankle.
And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast if you found it to be educational and know someone who would benefit. This is Nichelle Thompson on Everything is About Your Health, the podcast. So you're listening to this podcast because odds are you have carpal tunnel or you know somebody who has carpal tunnel. We are going to go over how I treat carpal tunnel at my clinic. We're just going to go over speaking about what the carpal tunnel syndrome actually is, how it can be diagnosed, prevention, and the treatment methods that I use. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about the research as well, especially regarding around laser therapy, specifically photobiomodulation therapy, otherwise known as low-intensity laser therapy. So it's not hot laser beams like they'll use in surgery, it's, it's light therapy where we use red and infrared light to stimulate the cells to promote cellular healing, such as reducing inflammation, improving blood flow, basically creating an optimal healing environment so that healing can in fact occur. So carpal tunnel syndrome, this is a debilitating disease um, that can severely impact a patient's quality of life. So oftentimes it's characterized by symptoms including pain in the hand and wrist, often accompanied by numbness, tingling, or burning in the first, second, third, and half of the fourth finger. So this is your thumb, your index, your middle, and a little bit of your ring finger. Until recently, surgery was the primary option available for patients seeking long-term relief from this issue. So what they had actually do is they would cut open the carpal tunnel. So there's between the thumb and the corner of the bottom of the palm of the hand. So I guess you could say that heel of the hand. There's this little piece of tape, you could call it, of ligaments that go right across from one part to the base base of your thumb, that meaty part of the thumb. And they'd actually go in there and cut it right across so this would give room to your tendons and that median nerve so that the median nerves and tendons aren't being squished and for some people it does help but this the surgery isn't as successful as you would hope and we're going to get into a little bit about that later on so at my clinic we see a lot of different issues and sometimes when people come in with to see me with carpal tunnel we discover that they actually don't even have carpal tunnel syndrome there's something else going on either the neck or there's nerve compression going on in the arm sometimes it could even be intracranial so issues at the actual skull that is creating these symptoms but there those are more rare so now let's get a little bit into the anatomy to maybe help explain things a little bit so the carpal tunnel is a narrow canal in the wrist that's surrounded by sides of the palmar aspect of the carpal bones. Palmar aspect is the palm of the hand and it's covered by what's called a flexor retinaculum. So that's why I was telling you about that piece of tape, like that, that ligament that goes across from one end to the other right above. Basically, if you would take your, your, your hand and put it palm facing up so you would receive a bowl of soup, say that way, and you flex your wrist so you're bringing your fingers to point towards you right above where your the crease of the wrist bends that is where the flexor retinaculum is so right here this is where the median nerve travels under as well as the flexor tendons that go into the hand that um, enables you to be able to make a fist okay so 
here's really interesting um, because what carpal tunnel syndrome actually is, is the compression of the median nerve. From my experience, it's because the inflammation and irritation of the surrounding tendons, which are the reflexor tendons, that becomes so inflamed that kind of squishes that median nerve. And if you have constant pressure on a nerve, of course, that's going to give you numbness, tingling, or burning into those fingers that we discussed earlier, which is the thumb, index, middle, and a little bit of the, the ring finger. Now, the median nerve, because you would feel numbness, tingling, burning in those um, uh, fingers, it controls that sensation. And it also controls motor function and motor function for all the small muscles in the hand. So it, it's quite important. It can, and that's what I was saying at the beginning. This can really affect people's quality of life because typically people who get it are people who use their hands for a living. They used to really think that it was a lot to do with the computer and keyboard work. But there's two large studies that reported recently that that concept isn't correct. It seems to be that there's other... Um, contributing factors that influence carpal tunnel syndrome highly and this is actually trauma to the wrist so this is sprains in the wrist in the past fractures contusions so that's bruises with resulting edema so that's um, big amounts of inflammation and of course if you have inflammation it's taking up space so that's where you get the compression of the median nerve hyperactivity of the pituitary gland so overactivation of the pituitary gland hypothyroidism so that's when the thyroid underperforms rheumatoid arthritis, mechanical problems with the wrist, work stress, and this is typically with repetitive use using vibrating tools, so think of construction workers. Fluid retention during pregnancy, again, fluid retention, right? It's taking up space, so therefore compressing on that median nerve, and a development of a cyst or tumor in that canal. So what is the best way to diagnosis. So there's two main tests that we'll, we'll use at my clinic and that's the Tinel sign and the flannels test. So Tinel sign is when you take two of your fingers. So I always like to use my index and middle finger and I knock right firmly right on the canal, right over that flexor retinaculum where the median nerve would be. If that reproduces symptoms, so numbness, tingling, or burning, typically would be tingling or a little bit of burden, but typically tingling, if it reproduces tingling, then that would be a positive sign for yes, there is irritation to that median nerve. Because if you want to try it on yourself right now, if you try to knock right on where the, the thumb and the bottom corner of your palm meet, so the heel of the hand, if you bang right in the middle firmly with your index and middle finger, you shouldn't feel any tingling being produced. If you do, and maybe you might want to look into that a little bit further. Phalen's maneuver is when you, and you can also do reverse phalen's as well. So I, I will do both sometimes. So it's basically when you take the backs of your hands and press them together and let your elbows drop down. So your wrists are flexing quite a bit. In the backs of your hands are kissing together. If you hold that for two minutes, it can reproduce the symptoms that you're feeling into those fingers that we discussed, the thumb, index, middle, and ring fingers. You can also do reverse feelings, which is you're pressing the palms of your hands together and trying to get as much extension as you can. So you're really in like almost like a praying position, really trying to get your elbows up as much as you can. And again, holding it for about two minutes and seeing if any symptoms are reproduced with that. 
So in terms of the percentages, like I was saying, um, about 20% of people, I would say maybe have borderline sort of a compression of the median nerve. But um, a lot of people who seem to come in with apparent carpal tunnel, and I'll even argue like 60% of people with um, apparent carpal tunnel syndromes, uh, from my experience, have been actually diagnosed um, incorrectly. And again, this is where I'm speaking about, is a nerve of the median nerve being compressed somewhere else? Is it being compressed in the neck? Is it being compressed in the shoulders? It could be being compressed anywhere along the arm or in the elbow or in the forearm that's actually creating these issues. And that can also be determined with palpation of the neck, with x-rays or imaging of the neck to rule out any nerve compression there, or through a test called upper limb tension test where I put the nerve, the median ulnar and radial nerve in varying degrees of range of motion to tense that nerve and put it out of its max tension to see if that reproduces any symptoms. Okay, so if we get into now prevention and treatment, because I know that's what you guys are dying, (laughs) dying to know, Prevention of carpal tunnel syndrome is often problematic for people who earn a living utilizing their hands. And trust me, guys, I understand because I earn a living with my hands as well, right? I treat people with my hands like any any manual therapist does. But generally, you want to try avoiding forceful repetitive actions of the hand and wrist um, because that can often alleviate symptoms just from doing that because it's these repetitive repetitive things that you do continuously that tend to be an issue and and again we kind of discussed earlier what that that can look like but rest periods can be implemented throughout the work day basically the idea is giving your uh, giving yourself multiple mini breaks um, because that seems to be more effective than giving yourself less frequent longer breaks and decreasing the stress on the structures of the wrist by constructing a very ergonomic workstation can also decrease the prevalence of carpal tunnel syndrome because you're setting up your workspace for you, your body type, your shape, your height of your spine, everything so that you can set yourself up as good as possible. Because let's face it, a lot of us have desk jobs. And again, even though there's two strong studies that link keyboard and computer work to not be the leading cause of carpal tunnel syndrome it definitely helps to have an ergonomically set up workspace like let's just be real here um one other thing that they've been using a lot because i want to speak to other treatment methods as well is steroid injections into the carpal tunnel and this can provide temporary relief typically around two to four months from, from what I've seen and what I've read in studies. Um, in fact, a review that I read recently of the effectiveness of the solution revealed that 18 months following the injection, about 20 some percent, I believe it was 22% of patients will still be symptom free after 18 months. So that's about a year and a half, right? Steroid injections ultimately just mask the underlying pathology and as such should be used temporarily in acute causes okay now let's get into a little bit of what I use at my clinic and again that's various 
work that I do manually to treat the whole nerve to make sure it's all loosened up. But we really like to hit the inflammation of the nerve with the laser therapy. Because if we actually even go as far to speak with to surgery, because it was generally utilized as the most um, effective form of uh, treatment, in fact, it's actually still to this day performed on 75% of carpal tunnel syndrome cases. And that was actually from a, a study as well. So that's, that's quite high, 75%. That, that's quite high. And it's interesting because this is the only uh, recommendation to this disease. It's, it's, it's funny because it can come back quite easily because of the scar tissue that develops after surgery. Right? When you, you know, let me just explain something. When you um, have a really bad muscle strain or if you have a really bad cut or, or surgery, right? <laughs> You'll note that when it heals, the scar almost has that or or where you injured yourself almost has like a, a rougher sort of point where you can feel where that injury was that's because scar tissue is a byproduct of inflammation that gets laid down um to help rebuild that structure but if it's rebuilding something wouldn't that just then create and cause still compression in that carpal tunnel and that's why um a few of my clients some are lucky but a lot aren't and their symptoms come back anyways. So what happens with this open release surgery when they cut open that flexor retinaculum, it's, it involves about a two to four um, inches that they used to cut. Now it can be even less. Like sometimes I even see two to three centimeters like that. That's quite a bit of a difference. So it's definitely like evolving that way. And... Sorry, that was my cat, guys. Say hello to Grace. <laughs> I guess she wanted to be involved in the podcast as well. Um, basically, when they... <sighs> so you were diagnosed with carpal tunnel. We're going to go over today in this podcast the anatomy of the carpal tunnel, what that actually is, how it should be or is mostly diagnosed because I find a lot of people who come into my clinic with possible carpal tunnel syndromes or they were actually diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome, they weren't actually diagnosed correctly. And I also want to go over the prevention and treatment method that I use within my clinic that really helps people to thrive from their healing of carpal tunnel. Because let's face it, carpal tunnel is a debilitating disease that can severely impact your life, right? So it's numbness, tingling, or burning, or other pain that affects your hand and your wrist. And oftentimes, because the nerve that is affected supplies a sensation into your thumb, middle ring finger, and middle finger, and also control small musculature in the hand. So, you know, making a fist, for example, and the strength of your grip is affected as well. It can highly impact your quality of life, like I mentioned. So if we go over the anatomy, just to help you understand a little bit of why this can happen, the carpal tunnel is actually a very narrow canal right in the wrist. 
and it's surrounded by the carpal bones in the back and right over top this structure almost like a piece of tape you can think about it that goes right over top of where the carpals are and this is called the flexor retinaculum this just helps to keep the tendons down, the flexor tendons down. So when you make a fist, they don't pop out of your hand. It just, it just helps with overall strength and, and stability and containment of the flexors in that fist area. But what can happen if you do a lot of repetitive things, especially work with your hands a lot, it can cause those flexor tendons to inflame and consequently take up more room and squish that median nerve, giving you that, those symptoms of numbness, tingling, burning, or weakness into that hand affecting you quite severely. So well, there was a study actually, two in fact, large studies, that debunked the whole theory about keyboards and computer works provoking and causing carpal tunnel syndrome. There seems to be many influencing factors that contribute to carpal tunnel syndrome. And this actually includes trauma to the actual wrist. So this is a sprain, a fracture to one of those carpal bones, or even the radius or the ulnar on that end, a contusion, so bruise with uh, resulting edema. So that's a, a lot of inflammation, right? More inflammation, taking more space and therefore compressing that median nerve. Hyperactivity of the pituitary gland, so an overactivity of the pituitary gland. Hypothyroidism, so underactivity of the thyroid. Rheumatoid arthritis, mechanical problems of the wrist. Work stress, especially those who work with vibrating tools, so think construction workers. Fluid retention during pregnancy, again, fluid retention, taking up space, therefore pressing on the median nerve. And development of a cyst or tumor in that canal. Again, it's taking up space, pressing on that median nerve. So early diagnosing is important for minimizing the long-term effects because the longer the median nerve is compressed, you're risking long-term damage, right? Because now the actual nerve itself is becoming inflamed and irritated and long-term that can create damage, right? So the tests that I use primarily to just simply diagnose, and again, I can't technically diagnose as an osteopathic practitioner, I can give my osteopathic diagnosis. Okay. That's something completely different than, than a doctor, just so you know. But the test that I use is the Tunnel sign and the uh, failings test. So Tunnel sign, I like to firmly tap on that tunnel with my index finger and ring or not index finger, middle finger, and really tap a good three to five times to see if it reproduces any symptoms that they have. Typically, this will reproduce tingling. That's what the tenal sign is noted. So if so, that generally indicates the irritation of that median nerve, that it's inflamed, and that's why it's reproducing those tingling sensations. Failings test, there's actually two. There's failings and the reverse failings test. So failings is when you place the backs of your hands together and let your elbows drop. And you hold this for about one to two minutes or until symptoms are reproduced. If the symptoms are reproduced, because when you do this test right, you're clamping down on that wrist, therefore taking up more space and compression. So if there is a problem with that median nerve, that extra compression will add to that already existing compression and recreate those symptoms. That's how that test works. The reverse failings is 
you just flip your hands over. So now it's the palms of your hands that are together and you try to lift your elbows up to the ceiling. You're in a very much in a prayer position. And again, holding this for one to two minutes or until symptoms are reproduced. Again, because now you're putting more stress on that median nerve, that would suggest that you have possible carpal tunnel. So the reason why we we do these tests and we want to make sure we're doing them properly is because I, I find, again, people are incorrectly diagnosed with this and I would even argue as much as 60%. Like it's quite high. And this is because sometimes the issues could be coming from the neck, could be coming from the shoulder, could be coming from other compressions or restrictions in the musculature of the arm, elbow, or forearm. And we also rule that out with basic, well, I <laughs> I guess rule that out with basic palpation. Imaging or x-rays would also be great to do on the neck to see if there is any disc issues or stenosis that's developing that would lead to nerve compression that may be creating these symptoms, etc. And another test that I use is called upper limb tension test. It's where I put the arms in various degrees of range of motion to maximally put tension on the nerve to see if it reproduces any symptoms. And the upper limb tension test actually tells me the most likely place that this nerve is most restricted. And then we go and treat from, from there. Now let's get into the prevention and treatment because I know that's the main reason why you guys are listening to this. You, you, you want to ask, or you're asking me basically by listening to this, Michelle, that's all great. But now what do I actually do about it? Because the prevention can be problematic, right? So the basic thing that I always like to tell my clients is, is movement is key. You want to make sure that you have proper strengthening of the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist so that the wrist isn't creating elbow issues, which isn't creating shoulders or vice versa. Anything going on with the wrist, the elbow, or the shoulder will usually affect all of those. So if something's going on with the wrist, so for example, personally, I was flipping tires as an exercise years ago, guys, and I'm talking years ago in college, okay? And I really badly injured this little cartilage in my wrist called the UFTT. Or, 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 yeah, yeah, upper, yeah, anyways, this little structure, forgive me, <laughs> this all sounds really great, Michelle. Um, forgive me, I'm making this podcast at 8.30 at night and I just got inspired to do it, so that is why we were doing it. Um, the TFCC, there we go. That is what it's called. <laughs> Good job, Michelle. Bear with me, guys. Bear with me. <laughs> oh, I make myself laugh sometimes. Okay, I hope you guys are laughing too. So anyways, I injured this structure, which is basically like a little meniscus for the wrist. Okay. And that created weakness in my grip, which years later, and this is now 10 years later, it's actually created shoulder mild shoulder instability that is now affecting my upper trap but then gets sore every once in a while and impacts my neck believe it or not so you start to see how that wrist issue started to affect the elbow which then the shoulder started to try to compensate for and now my upper trap and neck are trying to compensate for so how do you remedy that you want to do proper strengthening of the grip proper strengthening 
of the forearms, especially for me. I use my hands a lot, so it's very important. But I also want to make sure I have flexibility of those flexor tendons and the extensor tendons. So that's your basic forearm and ex, um, forearm, the back of the forearm and the, and the front of the forearm, your, your stretches. You also want to make sure that your traps are good and your lats are, are in good shape and your rotator cuff are, are solid and your, your, your back is also strengthened so that you're not compensating with your neck. And, and see how the list goes on and on of why it's so important to do a thorough assessment because just because you're coming to see me with carpal tunnel syndrome, even though we're going to be treating you for that, we, it's so important to look at those other things because there's a reason why you developed it. Especially if, you know, you didn't have a job where things are super repetitive or maybe things just came out of the blue. We, we just want to make sure that it is what it, it, it is and, and solely just exists as that. And, and we just have to treat it accordingly. Okay, that's all I'm kind of saying. So another form of uh, treatment that they've been using is steroid injections. Okay, and this provides temporary relief typically about two to four months. Okay, that's what one study said. And if you even look at other studies, when they did a review on their effectiveness of the steroid injections, about 18 months after following injection, only about 22% of people will still be symptom-free. Only 22%. That's two out of every 10 people after 18 months are still pain-free. So eight out of those 10 people are back at square one with the same issues they had before. In surgery, what they would do is they cut your right open, they cut through that flexor retinaculum to kind of free up space to give that median nerve more room and just hope that scar tissue development from that surgery doesn't develop, which then creates your issue all over again. And it's like you, you never did anything. So surgery though, right, right out the gate affects your strength it affects the fascia, right? So basically what I'm saying, if you can avoid surgery, that's what you want to do. So how do I treat that at my clinic? Like I said, we do a very thorough assessment from the neck right down into the fingers to see what's going on. And we look at strength of the musculature in these areas. We look at stability of the joints in the areas. We look at the flexibility and mobility. And we look at each individual nerve and the brachial plexus and where they're coming from to give us a very good idea of what is going on. We treat that manually, give you the exercise you need, give you the stretches that you need. And the big thing that separates our healing process from others is the fact that we utilize cold laser therapy to help treat that median nerve right in that carpal tunnel. So it's this uh, we have a Bioflex laser unit at my clinic. And we place one placement right across lengthwise from the palm of the hand down into the wrist. And the laser, which is red light and infrared light, gets delivered right into the tissues. Basically, where the mitochondria absorb the light and it transforms that light energy into mechanical energy that is literally used to speed up that healing process. And think about this as the same process of photosynthesis. A lot of people are familiar with photosynthesis. Okay, so that's when the plants take light energy from the sun and it's absorbed by chlorophyll. 
and that light energy is transformed into mechanical energy. So you see how it's similar to us. And the plant uses that to repair itself, to grow. Well, we do the same thing. When we absorb specific wavelengths of red light and infrared light therapy, the reason why we use two different forms of light is because they get to different depths within the tissues to get the maximal amount of cellular stimulation and absorption to heal itself then the process and the healing environment is much improved and now because the inflammation is being swept out of the area by the white blood cells that are brought in from the mass amount of blood that is attracted into the area via the laser well healing can actually take place because of the inflammation not being there. Well, now the cells aren't suffocating in inflammation and can actually do something about the healing process. Because after three months of being in any condition, that's when things can turn chronic. And when things are chronic, they get a little harder to deal with because the body kind of stays in that stagnant state of not healing itself. So usually I like to do my lasers in bulks of three so we can get a sense of What's going on? About 75% of people usually see results in the first three to four treatments, and we maintain that intensity of light. But you do have some people who are a little bit more sensitive where then we have to reduce the laser because their genetic makeup just so happens to be more sensitive, so they need less um, intensity of light and less stimulation so that their cells can act optimally to heal themselves right it's like everything's like a bell curve right you're always going to have a little bit of people who need less you have the majority that need that just goldilocks amount of light (laughs) and then you have also that other end of the spectrum who need more and that's fine and so when we um, figure out where they are then we maintain that until they have virtually um, no symptoms is the biggest kind of um, goal, okay? Um, If we kind of take a look at the studies that they specifically done at Meditech, so this is where my BioFlex laser systems come from. Because even though, um, like, I have a lot of personal experience with people, I never kept track of the actual legitimate numbers. But these people have done multiple case studies on over a million clients with multiple different cases. And when they specifically studied um, people, which they end up doing 171 cases of this, there was an improvement success rate of 84%. And this is long-term, 84%. That's huge. 84% means you have your life back. And coupled with my therapy from my experience is we can get people closer to that 90% where they barely have any issues. Their strength is good. They just have to maintain exercises to help maintain that 90. And depending on what they do, right, if it's something from their job, well, then they find they just have to come back every so often just to keep a general maintenance to keep that inflammation and that irritation of that nerve under control so that it doesn't get bad again. But yeah, if, um, how do I, how do I want to put that? Um, 
it was, and I want to actually, yeah. So, so let's just speak to a little bit more about that study. Cause I also think that's important. So the people that had that 84% success rate. So this was an average of 50 days. So this was about nine to 13 treatments. Okay. In about 40 to 50 days. And these people had an 84% success rate. So that, that's pretty significant. In 40 to 50 days, they had 9 to 13 treatments. Again, it varies because everybody's different, right? My thumbprint is different compared to your thumbprint. So how I respond to something is going to be slightly different compared to how you respond to something, etc. They had an 84% success rate. And that's just the average, right? So you have people that are 100% better and you have people that were 50% better. And again, it depends on a lot of different factors, what they do on a daily basis. Are they keeping up with their exercise that they should be, right? There's a lot of other factors that if people would do on their own, I'm sure that would also help them out as well. So you got to take that with um, uh, a grain of salt. So to sum it up, what carpal tunnel syndrome is, is an irritation of the median nerve specifically in that carpal tunnel region of the wrist where the symptoms are reproduced with tunnel sign failings or reverse failings test and laser therapy with about say 9 to 15 lasers in about a 40 to 50 day period on average gives 84% relief in symptoms meaning you have your life back. So that is how I like to treat carpal tunnel at my clinic. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me. I leave my email in the description of every podcast. And if you have any questions too, maybe not even pertaining to carpal tunnel, but pertaining to one of my other podcasts, don't be afraid to um, reach out. Thank you very much and have a great day. So you are diagnosed with carpal tunnel. We're going to go over today in this podcast, the anatomy of the carpal tunnel, what that actually is, how it should be, or is mostly diagnosed because I find a lot of people who come into my clinic with possible carpal tunnel syndromes, or they were actually diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome, they weren't actually diagnosed correctly. And... I also want to go over the prevention and treatment method that I use within my clinic that really helps people to thrive from their healing of carpal tunnel. Because let's face it, carpal tunnel is a debilitating disease that can severely impact your life, right? So it's numbness, tingling, or burning, or other pain that affects your hand and your wrist. And oftentimes, because the nerve that is affected supplies a sensation into your thumb middle ring finger and middle finger and also control small musculature in the hands so you know making a fist for example and the strength of your grip is affected as well it can highly impact your quality of life like i mentioned so If we go over the anatomy, just to help you understand a little bit of why this can happen, 
carpal tunnel is actually a very narrow canal right in the wrist. And it's surrounded by the carpal bones in the back and right over top this structure, almost like you, a piece of tape, you can think about it, that goes right over top of where the carpals are. And this is called the flexor retinaculum. This just helps to keep the tendons down, the flexor tendons down, so when you make a fist, they don't pop out of your hand. It just, it just helps with overall strength and, and stability and containment of the flexors in that fist area. But what can happen if you do a lot of repetitive things, especially work with your hands a lot, it can cause those flexor tendons to inflame and consequently take up more room and squish that median nerve, giving you that, those symptoms of numbness, tingling, burning, or weakness into that hand, affecting you quite severely. So well, there was a study actually, two in fact, large studies, that debunked the whole theory about keyboards and computer works provoking and causing carpal tunnel syndrome. There seems to be many influencing factors that contribute to carpal tunnel syndrome, and this actually includes trauma to the actual wrist. So this is a sprain, a fracture to one of those carpal bones, or even the radius or the ulna on that end, a contusion, so bruise, with uh, resulting edema, so that's a, a lot of inflammation, right? More inflammation, taking up more space, and therefore compressing that median nerve. Hyperactivity of the pituitary gland, so an overactivity of the pituitary gland. Hypothyroidism, so underactivity of the thyroid. Rheumatoid arthritis, mechanical problems of the wrist. Work stress, especially those who work with vibrating tools, so think construction workers. Fluid retention during pregnancy, again, fluid retention, taking up space, therefore pressing on the median nerve. And development of a cyst or tumor in that canal. Again, it's taking up space, pressing on that median nerve. So early diagnosing is important for minimizing the long-term effects because the longer the median nerve is compressed, you're risking long-term damage, right? Because now the actual nerve itself is becoming inflamed and irritated and long-term that can create damage, right? So the tests that I use primarily to just simply diagnose, and again, I can't technically diagnose as an osteopathic practitioner, I can give my osteopathic diagnosis, okay? That's something completely different than, than a doctor, just so you know. But the test that I use is the Tunnel sign and the uh, failings test. So Tunnel sign, I like to firmly tap on that tunnel with my index finger and ring, or not, index, index finger and middle finger, and really tap a good three to five times to see if it reproduces any symptoms that they have. Typically, this will reproduce tingling. That's what the tunnel sign is noted. So if so, that generally indicates the irritation of that median nerve, that it's inflamed, and that's why it's reproducing those tingling sensations. Failings test, there's actually two. There's failings and the reverse failings test. So failings is when you place the backs of your hands together and let your elbows drop. And you hold this for about one to two minutes or until symptoms are reproduced. If the symptoms are reproduced, because when you do this test right, you're clamping down on that wrist, therefore taking up more space and compression. So if there is a problem with that median nerve, that extra compression will add to that already existing compression and recreate those symptoms. That's how that test works. The reverse failings is 
you just flip your hands over. So now it's the palms of your hands that are together and you try to lift your elbows up to the ceiling. You're in a very much in a prayer position. And again, holding this for one to two minutes or until symptoms are reproduced. Again, because now you're putting more stress on that median nerve, that would suggest that you have possible carpal tunnel. So the reason why we we do these tests and we want to make sure we're doing them properly is because I, I find, again, people are incorrectly diagnosed with this and I would even argue as much as 60%. Like it's quite high. And this is because sometimes the issues could be coming from the neck, could be coming from the shoulder, could be coming from other compressions or restrictions in the musculature of the arm, elbow, or forearm. And we also rule that out with basic, well, I <laughs> I guess rule that out with basic palpation. Imaging or x-rays would also be great to do on the neck to see if there is any disc issues or stenosis that's developing that would lead to nerve compression that may be creating these symptoms, etc. And another test that I use is called upper limb tension test. It's where I put the arms in various degrees of range of motion to maximally put tension on the nerve to see if it reproduces any symptoms. And the upper limb tension test actually tells me the most likely place that this nerve is most restricted. And then we go and treat from, from there. Now let's get into the prevention and treatment because I know that's the main reason why you guys are listening to this. You, you, you want to ask or you're asking me basically by listening to this, Michelle, that's all great, but now what do I actually do about it? Because the prevention can be problematic, right? So the basic thing that I always like to tell my clients is, is movement is key. You want to make sure that you have proper strengthening of the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist so that the wrist isn't creating elbow issues, which isn't creating shoulders or vice versa. Anything going on with the wrist, the elbow, or the shoulder will usually affect all of those. So if something's going on with the wrist, so for example, personally, I was flipping tires as an exercise years ago, guys, and I'm talking years ago in college, okay? And I really badly injured this little cartilage in my wrist called the UFTT or, or, or yeah, yeah, upper, yeah, anyways, this little structure, forgive me, <laughs> this all sounds really great, Michelle, um, forgive me, I'm making this podcast at 8.30 at night and I just got inspired to do it, so that is why we were doing it, um, the TFCC, there we go. That is what it's called. <laughs> Good job, Michelle. Bear with me, guys. Bear with me. <laughs> oh, I make myself laugh sometimes. Okay, I hope you guys are laughing too. So anyways, I injured this structure, which is basically like a little meniscus for the wrist. Okay? And that created weakness in my grip, which years later, and this is now 10 years later, it's actually created shoulder mild shoulder instability that is now affecting my upper trap but then gets sore every once in a while and impacts my neck believe it or not so you start to see how that wrist issue start to affect the elbow which then the shoulder started to try to compensate for and now my upper trap and neck are trying to compensate for so how do you remedy that you want to do proper strengthening of the grip proper strengthening 
of the forearms, especially for me. I use my hands a lot, so it's very important. But I also want to make sure I have flexibility of those flexor tendons and the extensor tendons. So that's your basic forearm and ex, um, forearm, the back of the forearm and the, and the front of the forearm, your, your stretches. You also want to make sure that your traps are good and your lats are, are in good shape and your rotator cuff are, are solid and your, your, your back is also strengthened so that you're not compensating with your neck. And, and see how the list goes on and on of why it's so important to do a thorough assessment because just because you're coming to see me with carpal tunnel syndrome, even though we're going to be treating you for that, we, it's so important to look at those other things because there's a reason why you developed it. Especially if, you know, you didn't have a job where things are super repetitive or maybe things just came out of the blue. We, we just want to make sure that it is what it, it, it is and, and solely just exists as that. And, and we just have to treat it accordingly. Okay, that's all I'm kind of saying. So another form of uh, treatment that they've been using is steroid injections. Okay, and this provides temporary relief typically about two to four months. Okay, that's what one study said. And if you even look at other studies, when they did a review on their effectiveness of the steroid injections, about 18 months after following injection, only about 22% of people will still be symptom-free. Only 22%. That's two out of every 10 people after 18 months are still pain-free. So eight out of those 10 people are back at square one with the same issues they had before. In surgery... What they would do is they cut your right open, they cut through that flexor retinaculum to kind of free up space to give that median nerve more room and just hope that scar tissue development from that surgery doesn't develop, which then creates your issue all over again and it's like you you never did anything. So surgery though, right, right out the gate affects your strength, it affects the fascia, right? So basically what I'm saying, if you can avoid surgery, that's what you want to do. So how do I treat that at my clinic? Like I said, we do a very thorough assessment from the neck right down into the fingers to see what's going on. And we look at strength of the musculature in these areas. We look at stability of the joints in the areas. We look at the flexibility and mobility. And we look at each individual nerve and the brachial plexus and where they're coming from to give us a very good idea of what is going on. We treat that manually, give you the exercise you need, give you the stretches that you need. And the big thing that separates our healing process from others is the fact that we utilize cold laser therapy to help treat that median nerve right in that carpal tunnel. So it's this, uh, we have the BioFlex laser unit at my clinic and we place one placement right across lengthwise from the palm of the hand down into the wrist. And the laser, which is red light and infrared light, gets delivered right into the tissues. Basically, where the mitochondria absorb the light and it transforms that light energy into mechanical energy that is literally used to speed up that healing process. And think about this as the same process of photosynthesis. A lot of people are familiar with photosynthesis. Okay, so that's when the plants take light energy from the sun and it's absorbed by chlorophyll. 
and that light energy is transformed into mechanical energy. So you see how it's similar to us. And the plant uses that to repair itself, to grow. Well, we do the same thing. When we absorb specific wavelengths of red light and infrared light therapy, the reason why we use two different forms of light is because they get to different depths within the tissues to get the maximal amount of cellular stimulation and absorption to heal itself, then the process and the healing environment is much improved. And now, because the inflammation is being swept out of the area by the white blood cells that are brought in from the mass amount of blood that is attracted into the area via the laser, well, healing can actually take place because of the inflammation not being there. Well, now the cells aren't suffocating in inflammation and can actually do something about the healing process. Because after three months of being in any condition, that's when things can turn chronic. And when things are chronic, they get a little harder to deal with because the body kind of stays in that stagnant state of not healing itself. So usually I like to do my lasers in bulks of three so we can get a sense of what's going on. About 75% of people usually see results in the first three to four treatments and we maintain that intensity of light. But you do have some people who are a little bit more sensitive where then we have to reduce the laser because their genetic makeup just so happens to be more sensitive. So they need less um, intensity of light and less stimulation so that their cells can act optimally to heal themselves, right? It's everything's like a bell curve, right? You're always going to have a little bit of people who need less. You have the majority that need that just Goldilocks amount of light. (laughs) And then you have also that other end of the spectrum who need more and that's fine. And so when we um, figure out where they are, then we maintain that until they have Virtually um, no symptoms is the biggest kind of um, goal, okay? Um, If we kind of take a look at the studies that they specifically done at Meditech, so this is where my Bioflex laser systems come from. Because even though, um, like, I have a lot of personal experience with people, I never kept track of the actual legitimate numbers but these people have done multiple case studies on over a million clients with multiple different cases and when they specifically studied um, people which they end up doing 171 cases of this there was an improvement success rate of 84 percent and this is long term 84 that's huge 84% means you have your life back and coupled with my therapy from my experience is we can get people closer to that 90% where they barely have any issues their strength is good they just have to maintain exercises to help maintain that 90 and depending on what they do right if it's something from their job well then they find they just have to come back every so often just to keep a general maintenance to keep that inflammation and that irritation of that nerve under control so that it doesn't get bad again but yeah if um how do i how do i want to put that um 
it was, and I want to actually, yeah. So, so let's just speak to a little bit more about that study because I also think that's important. So the people that had that 84% success rate, so this was an average of 50 days. So this was about nine to 13 treatments, okay, in about 40 to 50 days. And these people had an 84% success rate. So that, that's pretty significant. In 40 to 50 days, they had 9 to 13 treatments. Again, it varies because everybody's different, right? My thumbprint is different compared to your thumbprint. So how I respond to something is going to be slightly different compared to how you respond to something, etc. They had an 84% success rate. And that's just the average, right? So you have people that are 100% better and you have people that were 50% better. And again, it depends on a lot of different factors, what they do on a daily basis. Are they keeping up with their exercises that they should be, right? There's a lot of other factors that if people would do on their own, I'm sure that would also help them out as well. So you got to take that with um, uh, a grain of salt. So to sum it up, what carpal tunnel syndrome is, is an irritation of the median nerve specifically in that carpal tunnel region of the wrist where the symptoms are reproduced with tunnel sign failings or reverse failings test and laser therapy with about say 9 to 15 lasers in about a 40 to 50 day period on average gives 84% relief in symptoms meaning you have your life back. So that is how I like to treat carpal tunnel at my clinic. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me. I leave my email in the description of every podcast. And if you have any questions too, maybe not even pertaining to carpal tunnel, but pertaining to one of my other podcasts, don't be afraid to um, reach out. Thank you very much and have a great day.